Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is a Carolina Academic Press production where we discuss everything law school. The Law School Lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law. We hope you'll hang out with us for a while. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Law School Lounge for this final part of my interview and wonderful discussion with professors Richard Michael Fischel and Jeremy Paul. In our prior episodes, we talked about case briefs and issue spotting, and now we're moving on to what is a legal argument and should you be using the well-known, often-taught, pretty much across the board, IRAC structure when it comes to your exam answers and crafting an argument for purposes of getting the best grade possible on your exams. Now, what's really important about our discussion is that not only do we kind of critique or talk about IRAC generally and consider how it might work on an exam when it comes to crafting an argument, but The professors give an alternative to IRAC that may be more intuitive to you, and they explain why you should use their structure instead of another, including IRAC. We have a lot of laughs in this episode, and I was so fortunate to have them join me for all three of these episodes. I hope that you feel you can take something away from all of the great information that they share. One more note for you is that throughout this episode, we talk about Professor Jeremy Paul's article called A Bedtime Story. This article is readily available. There will be a link in the show notes for you to this article. If you are a new law student or you are in your second or third years of law school even, this article is a great read. It really puts into perspective and context the different types of arguments most people have been making their entire lives without even realizing it. And it really helps you work through some of the more confusing aspects of making a legal argument by putting them into a context that pretty much anyone and everyone can relate to on some level. So with that, let's get into the episode. I can't wait for you to hear everything we talked about, and I hope you enjoy. Let's talk arguments. Let's talk arguments. Okay. So our final question is a big one, and it is, what's an argument? Who wants to go first on that one? I suppose it's probably my turn. I disagree. That was very lawyerly of you both. I I just (laughs) wanted to show them what an argument was. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) So... You know, we, 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 we have this story in our, in our book uh, as well uh, to sort of um, smooth the waters for getting into the question of what's an argument, uh, which is, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting around um, uh, the 
table with your uh, fiance's parents um, and uh, the, your, your uh, prospective uh, mother-in-law is questioning you um, and says to you, you know, so, uh, you know, what do you think the uh, United States position should be uh, towards China? And you quite honestly have no friggin' idea. But somehow or other, you know that if you say that to your mother-in-law, that's not going to go well. Uh, and so you have to sort of cobble together uh, something to make it seem as though, uh, you know, her uh, uh, child is not uh, uh, marrying a, a complete idiot. Uh, and there is a certain way in which uh, the experience of being a law student, uh, when you take your first set of exams, uh, is sort of like that. because you thought you learned the rules, and now you, as you're reading through the exam, and you go, oh my God, the rule doesn't cover that, and the rule doesn't cover this, and, the rule doesn't cover this. and what am I supposed to do, right? How am I supposed to know uh, what, because, because you're the professor, I'm the student. You're supposed to tell me what to do. Why are you asking me? To, right? So that, that, that's the, the, the project. And the first thing I would say about how to tackle that project is, if you've been paying attention, from the very beginning of the year, you will have noticed that that's basically all that's been happening in class uh, from day one, is that your classmates, your professor, uh, have been constructing arguments to solve all the situations where the rules are not clear. But it's likely that in many of your classes, uh, the professor will not have paused, uh, you know, and like you know, rang a bell and said, that's an argument, right? So you have to figure out for yourself uh, what those are. This is one of the reasons why uh, I, when I first started teaching, uh, I wrote a little uh, article for students uh, called The Bedtime Story uh, to alert them to the fact that from the very first moment uh, that they said to their babysitter, I should be able to stay up later tonight than usual because school is starting late tomorrow. Uh, and so I can get more sleep. From that moment on, they knew that they were making arguments. So um, an argument is, a, is basically a suggestion to the court, very much along the lines that uh, Michael discussed in our prior episode about issue spotting, that now that we see that we don't know whether the rule goes one way or the other, here's why I think it should go my way. And blessedly, there are a whole roster of familiar stances that lawyers can take that will push judges to push things in their direction. So half of those things are what you might call interpretive arguments. Arguments about this is really what the rule means. If you look up this word in the dictionary, here's what it says. If you uh, look at the practice in the industry as to how this word is often used, this is how it's often used. Uh, if you look at the legislative history, when they put this word into the statute, this is what they said that they were that they mean. If you read the court opinion uh, in which a particular rule was adopted, you can see the things that the judge stressed uh, as to why the judge adopted this rule, and those same things the judge stressed in that case should be um, compelling 
uh, in our case uh, as well. And all of those interpretive arguments are tools available uh, to the student uh, to convince the judge, now that you see the rules not binding, go my way. Right? So that's argument set uh, number one. Those are the argument sets uh, that um, even the most traditional uh, practitioners of the law will readily agree are part and parcel of what it means to be a great lawyer. You've got to be able to uh, interpret prior rules uh, in um, available ways. But even those arguments often run out. Right? One side says uh, the word in the dictionary means this. The other side says, yeah, but practice in the industry says it means the opposite. What do we do now? Right? Uh, and so there's a second set uh, of arguments, uh, which pretty routinely now would be referred to uh, in uh, most law school classes uh, as what are called policy arguments. Right? And these are arguments uh, about um, why, given all the things the law is seeking to accomplish, the court would be better off reading the gap in the rule or the ambiguity in the rule one way versus another way. And blessedly enough, there's a standard roster of those uh, arguments as well. And we have uh, chapters on interpretive arguments. And then we have another chapter uh, in the book uh, called Policy Czars, uh, in which uh, we uh, detail those uh, th that roster. And they're not at all unfamiliar. They're things that everybody knows from their daily life, right? Uh, it will be more efficient if we do things this way. Um, wealth will be maximized if we adopt this uh, uh, position. Um, it will be easier to administer if we have a clear rule rather than something that's vague and open-ended, right? Uh, it will be um, uh, more consistent with the way we've done things in the past to do things uh, one way uh, or another. And all of those things are additional tools that are available to you as the exam writer to push the judge to decide a case your way uh, rather than the other way. And here's the bottom line. The professors are expecting that after you spot an issue and after you frame it, as you put it in our prior episode, you don't stop, right? You have to keep going and say, well, great. Now that we understand uh, that the charter school might be a private school or a public school, uh, or now that we understand that a catering contract might be a sale of goods or it might be a service, depending on whether you focus on selling the food or cooking the food. Uh, now that we see that it could be one way or the other, you know, my, my favorite example I use with my students uh, is that um, after 9-11, uh, when, you know, tragically, uh, the two Twin Towers were knocked down, there were insurance contracts that the owners uh, of the buildings had. Uh, and the insurance contracts, unsurprisingly, had a cap. This is, this is the most we can pay out. And the cap was done by event right, so and so many millions of dollars per event. 
And now the question was, when the two planes hit the two towers, was that one event or was it two? And hundreds of millions of dollars turned on that result. And where are you going to look? There's no, there's, no de- there, there's no dictionary that tells you what counts as one and what counts as two, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you need to be very creative. What was meant in that contract? And I, the reason why I like that example so much is that it's so easy to understand. Everybody gets it just like that, right? And, yeah. and yet it's also so impl- impossibly difficult because what's the right answer, right? Uh, so uh, the reason why arguments are so important is that in real-world disputes, it's never enough just to spot the issue because the 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 nature of the dispute is that the parties themselves will do a really good job of identifying the issue because one party is going to say, this is how to look at it. And the other party is going to say, no, no, that's how to look at it. And now, <laughs> and now when you're the judge, right, what you want, you want from the lawyers uh, is uh, guidance on, well, which way of these, which of these two ways is the better way uh, to look at it. So I'll stop now. No, no, I think that's a great example. And it actually makes me think of a conversation that I had with a student who was working on writing their objective memo, right? Uh, So they were writing and I was talking to them about how they left out the analysis portion. And we'll talk about Iraq in a second because I can't wait to hear your thoughts on that. (laughs) For the analysis portion, I said, Instead of thinking of yourself as just a person who's writing a memo for an attorney to look at, right, because they're paralegal students, you're not operating in that vacuum. You have a whole nother side who's putting on their own case. And then on top of that, you have a judge who's going to read what eventually comes from this memo. So putting yourself in that context, imagine you're the judge, imagine you're the other side, and imagine someone says, that the question is, we'll think we'll use the bedtime story because I am going to share that article in the notes so that everybody can take a look at it. It's a wonderful article. But imagine you're a child and you say, well, I want to know whether or not I can stay up later tonight. And then all that comes next is I get to stay up later tonight. What's your first question going to be? No matter who you are, why? Why can you stay up later, right? And if you're left at the end of reading whatever you put together and that why isn't answered, that means you haven't done enough. And the why is your argument. And as you go through this learning process, you learn those great tools that Jeremy just talked about with interpretive arguments and policy arguments. You realize that there's not, it's not a wild west out there, although lawyers make it a wild west sometimes, but you know what I mean? There are some structures that you can use and tools you can use to make effective arguments versus ineffective arguments. But if somebody reads what you put together and they're left asking why, you have a problem. Uh, And that means your argument needs some work or needs to be included if it's been left out and so on and so forth. And so your example too, with the 9-11 and the money Right. If they went to court and all that money was at issue and no one says why the outcome should be a certain way, that's not very helpful for anyone involved. And there's a lot of money at stake. Right. And you don't want to be that person. Uh, But I'd love to get Michael's thoughts, too. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking. That as a young child. 
the first time that I really um, thought ill of my parents, whom I adored, and you know, and I, I was, I am told I was a good kid, as hard as I worked to be impossible. Um, but was the time that they answered my why with because I said so. Mm-hmm. I was infuriated. And that that would come up later. There was I remember an argument with my dad when I was 16 or 17 about the use of the car and he and he was getting exasperated so he said because I said so and I just thought that was just such a failure of advocacy and parenting frankly and he didn't have many of them. Well, I was going to say my parents they always just told me life isn't fair. <laughs> well, yeah. That, that same, would, same idea. I'd be like, okay, that answers none of my question, but continue. Right, it's, it's making the same point, but not taking responsibility for, <laughs> for the exercise of power. I'm, and, and I'm familiar with that one uh, too. And as a parent myself, I am aware of like, you know, how great it was when the kitchen timer told the kids they had to go to bed because I would just be, oh my, you know, it's, the timer i um <laughs> i could express sympathy and 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 then watch them scurry off the reason i raise all this is that i i want to uh join both of you in urging listeners to read jeremy's bedtime story um and the, and and so i'm going to say just a little bit more about it here um Probably some listeners, when they told their friends they were going to law school, went, really? You? And, you know, and I hope by now you have new friends. But for most of us, when, when the choice of law school, we have been hearing adults in our world, parents, coaches, teachers, camp counselors, say, you know, You'd be a good lawyer our whole lives. And it, you know, I'm slow, but I'm not stupid. I figured out at some point that was not a compliment. They were not saying you're, you're going to be rich. Um, <laughs> no, my parents and, didn't mean it as a compliment when they told me that. No, <laughs> no. They, what they mean is you're arguing. And the, and so I want to say, to those headed to law school, chances are you're pretty good at this. Chances are this is a, this, you know, you don't come to law school with issue spotting skill. You don't come to law school with a head full of either the rules or the interpretive moves uh, or, or the policy arguments to be made about them. But you do come to school with a set of argumentative skills. Jeremy was quite right when he said these are skills we use in the daily life. And what's fabulous about the bedtime story, because it it is almost entirely, it consists of a conversation between the kid and the babysitter. And what Jeremy does is has the kids say things kids will say in that situation and responses the babysitters will give. Um, and then he will parenthetically given a name for the kind of legal argument it is. And this is one of those, um, one of the reasons why it's so hard 
at the beginning of your legal education because there's kind of an infinite regress. It's like, well, first you should read this, but actually before that, you'll need to read this and this. A couple weeks into law school, you read the bedtime story and you'll go, oh, yeah, these arguments come up over and over again. And if there is a, a, a there is, I think the huge value of the Getting to Maybe book, as well as the bedtime story, is to say, these aren't random. You don't have to like memorize a random list and figure out the right one to come up with uh, at the right time. That you know, the, 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 that is what you do as you're walking down the stairs after an oral argument. You go, ah, yeah, that was the right argument. Why didn't I say it? Every advocate has that feeling. But that arguments come in patterns. And that means, first of all, they're much easier to to organize and to learn and remember. But the other tip is that almost every argument has a fairly common counter-argument attached. And you're miles ahead if you've got your instinct about what you want to say, but you can also anticipate what the other side is going to say. So that if you're saying, what part of family, quote unquote, do you not understand? And you know the other side is going to come back with living constitutionalism or looking at purpose and saying family meant something different in 1999 than it does now. And we shouldn't be governed by the dead hand of law that we now not only have abandoned, but that we regret. So it is where bedtime story succeeds is it shows that you've been doing this since you were 10. Um, and that's why you don't have any friends. Uh, and, and, but, but boy, is law school going to do, go well for you. No, and I think that <laughs> my parents will appreciate hearing this episode, I think. <laughs> but that's a great point. And I, I look forward to sharing that article with even more people through this podcast episode and, and putting that in the notes. Because when I read it the other day, it was the first time that I had read it. And I appreciate that it walks through a very accessible, recognizable, relevant sort of situation that every kid, every person has kind of been in at some point. And then in nice little neat parentheticals, it's like you did you this when if you said this, this is what you were doing and you didn't even know it. And it really provides it in a way that is something that anyone can understand and, and relate to. And that's one of the most difficult things for professors or lawyers or whoever is teaching what the art of an argument can do. I mean, a lot of just making it accessible and understandable can be really difficult. And you both have done such an incredible job with that and getting to maybe. And, you know, I think I really appreciate the title in particular because I, you know, one of the things you always hear in law school is it depends, right? And the idea of what a right answer is, is a maybe because it depends, is a very foreign concept to most people. And it seems really scary 
right? Like if you're sitting there and you're banking a hundred percent on this exam and your answer is maybe, that sounds horrifying to most students, especially when it's new. And you do such a great job of explaining why that is the case and why that's actually the right answer for purposes of law school exams. So for Iraq, obviously when students get into law school, they hear that the holy grail is Iraq to conduct a full statement and analysis of a question. And Iraq stands for issue, rule, analysis, conclusion. And there are other variations on it like crack. So conclusion, rule, analysis, conclusion, or CREAC, conclusion, rule, exception, analysis, conclusion. And as someone who teaches legal writing, which is one of the reasons why I'm so interested to hear your thoughts on Iraq, uh, you know, I, I find that Iraq is a good starting point for most students. They appreciate it in the sense that it provides some kind of template, which obviously has its own concerns and issues. But mm, pretty much every law school in some way or another encourages the use of Iraq. And from what I understand, you maybe don't encourage the use of IRAC as much as others would, uh, particularly when it comes to exams. So let's hear it. Why, why is that? Well, let me start by playing a role I don't often play, but it's the role of obnoxious law professors. <laughs> and the answer is I have been teaching for um, It'll be 40 years this fall. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, sometimes just not dying is like <laughs> the key to success. And here I am. Um, and I've taught at many schools. I, I teach at UConn, which has really been uh, soul nourishing for me. But over the years, I've taught at University of Miami, taught at Yale, taught at Cardozo taught at Northeastern, all great schools. So, and I have gone to lots and lots of law conferences and I've talked to lots and lots of law professors. Some of my best friends are law professors. One of them is on this podcast with us. Uh, Y'all have been um, in it together for a while. <laughs> we have. And for at least the past two decades, everyone's known about getting to maybe, everybody in my world is known about getting to maybe. And so, uh, and especially when we were originally writing it, it was the subject of a lot of conversations. In that entire time, I have only met one professor who thought that Iraq answers were a good idea. Virtually everyone else, and I probably discussed it with a hundred, at least a hundred over that have gone, oh God, yeah, if you can get them off that, that would be fantastic. Um, though one of the points of our book is we don't, as law professors and legal educators, generally do a very good job of telling students what we want instead. And there are very few professors who, who I know of who would go into an expert to an explanation for why you shouldn't use Iraq that isn't just because I said so, right? Um, and and so, you know, and I and I think this is a 
a, a real failure in, le in legal education. And I think that especially legal writing instructors and academic success people who are frequently working the hardest with the students for, for whom students who are struggling the most, the urge to have a template, a format they can count on. I, oh, I get that. Uh, both Jeremy and I, um, since we wrote the first edition, have had our kids go through law school. My daughter did and both of Jeremy's sons did. And I, and, you know, Molly knew what I thought about Iraq because she read getting the maybe the first edition before she went and <laughs> proceeded to use it in law school. And she said, yeah, well, that's what it, you know, everyone says mm -hmm. uh, to use. And I said, do your professors say, well, no, professors don't, but that, you know, that's just like the culture. And, um, and so I will end this answer with what I think students should do instead, because you do need some sort of format. But, Here's what I see as the first problem with it. Iraq is a great template for one kind of exam question. It's an exam question where there is only one rule. You don't have two contenders for the throne of what the law is. And where everybody agrees on how to read the rule. We know what it means. And what is tricky is how the rule applies to this set of facts. And so all of the action is in applying the rule to this set of facts. And in that setting, an analysis that says you've got to identify the issue, cite the rule, there's only one and we know how to read it. And then I think most professors would feel more comfortable if A was not read as application, better to read it as analysis, better still to read it as argument, right, to uh, assess the way the case might come out. Um, and then if the professors called for a conclusion to give, uh, to give a conclusion. But even in this setting where the order of analysis is basically right, it sounds like a syllogism and it ain't because on an issue spotter exam, there's an issue. And if the issue isn't about what the rule is, and if the issue isn't about how to read the rule, the issue is going to be about, the, about what you do with the facts. And accordingly, that means there's a dispute and the idea that it's just like all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, do doesn't cut it. That's why mere application is misleading. That's also why the C term can be misleading, because it makes students think that there will always be a C. And I'd have to say, on the vast, on the overwhelming majority of law exam questions, that I took as a student and that I've seen as a professor and that I've dealt with while teaching academic success courses, there is no single seat. You know, there may be a better view, a stronger view, but the idea that there is a conclusion that follows syllogistically is sort of deeply 
misleading and exactly what we wrote getting the Navy to sort of disturb and unsettle. For every other kind of question that professors ask, Iraq is like giving a fish a bicycle. <laughs> Lots of professors test questions where what rule governs is up in the air. We talked earlier about uh, private school, public school, charter school problem. You can't IRAC that you, uh, because you've got multiple rules with a whole set of questions that you've got to ask before you can even get to them. Professors, I, th I bet you, especially today, that if you did a statistical analysis of what kinds of issues are tested on exams, interpretation issues would loom really, really large. I mean, the Supreme Court is to the point where they're dissing each other in the Wall Street Journal about, about the, how you're supposed to interpret the Constitution. Um, this is the hot issue of our time, and it, it's what gets tested. Iraq doesn't address that. Notice that the I term is issue, not interpretation. And a question that's all, all about interpretation is not going to be handled by a template that has no place for that, for that, no, you know, no designated place for that. Um, third point is that Iraq gets the order of operations for most questions wrong, precisely because so many questions either centrally involve a question of interpretation or that's one of the issues. The issue doesn't arise until you have the rule. The rule comes first. Now we've got an issue about how to read it. And so, you know, just the order of operations um, is backwards. So um, what should they do? And the answer that I would um, that I would give is back to our point about how you engage in issue spotting. What will the lawyers argue about? And if you simply say the lawyers will argue about this and the lawyers will argue about this and then you follow each of those with and this is what the argument will look like. Right. And finally, if the exam calls for you to make judgments about conclusions or stronger answers, that's what you're going to do. A key component of answering the question asked is remembering who your judge is and your judge is your professor. And, and lots of students will read their professors as, you know, she's not looking for answers, she's looking for analysis and argument. Mm -hmm. Other professors can seem very dogmatic and they think there are answers and so give them answers. But the the punchline is that I think that trying to turn it into a formula is overthinking. Mm. What I've what I, I I frequently do encounter Iraq answers, especially when I teach um, in in our uh, in our foreign programs where 
the students have heard about America's IRAC system and try to apply it. And they end up struggling about what the issue is, what the rule is, what which thing to put in what place. And it's just like, no, what are they going to argue about? What are they going to argue? And don't overcomplicate it. So that's my take on Iraq. That's a wonderful take on Iraq. I think it's really interesting because I would love to hear your thoughts on this from the perspective of, so I graduated law school in 2013, so a whopping 10 years ago now, which doesn't seem that long ago. And so I remember I did well in law school and all of my classmates were like, how did you do so well on your first round of exams? And and I was one of those students that Jeremy referenced earlier that something just kind of clicked early on for me. And one of the things I think that looking back on it anyway, benefited me was I used Iraq as a tool versus as an end-all be-all. So for example, with I used Iraq because it made sure that when I was in a situation where things could easily fly out of my head and I would forget them on an exam because I'm feeling overwhelmed and stressed and anxious, Iraq made sure that I talked about the rule. Iraq made sure that I reached some kind of conclusion. Now, whether that was a hard conclusion or a conclusion that looked like, okay, a judge looking at this case and considering all things would likely rule in favor of the plaintiff, right? That's a conclusion. It's just not a hard one. And so Iraq allowed me to stay organized and on track in an exam when I let it be something that was a tool versus a template, something I had to follow, something that was really structured. And I looked at issue as what's the question the court has to answer or would answer, whatever that might be. The rule, it might be a statement of law, but it might also just be what they're looking to to answer the question. What governs here to answer the question? I looked at analysis as why, and then I just looked at conclusion as outcome. But it gave me sort of a sense of security versus having, especially that first semester, it just feels so overwhelming. And I agree that looking at things through the lens of what are the parties here to talk about and so on is good. But when so many things feel so uncertain, that little bit of certainty can really give someone a lot of confidence in what they're doing. And and that was just my experience anyway. And so I think just kind of tweaking the IRAC structure is good. Uh, and I think I personally had a really great legal writing professor because they were who put me on to thinking about Iraq that way. And I think a lot of that comes down to philosophy on how people think about legal writing too in general. Like anyone who tells you that in every single thing you write, you need to strictly follow Iraq or Kriak or whatever the case may be, is doing you a disservice, I think, in my humble opinion, because there it's nothing in law is one size fits all ever. <laughs> that's just like part of the scenario. And so, you know, for those students who maybe feel a little connection to Iraq because it makes sense to them, um, and do you have any thoughts about what that could look like? 
like how how do you feel about any kinds of variations on Iraq? Like, do you think it could still serve in an exam purpose? I I I love your restatement of Iraq because it sounded for all the world to me like getting the Navy. Um, so, <laughs> well, you so, taught so me the, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it it by the time you were done with it, it wasn't Iraq anymore. That it gave you an order in which to ask questions, the sort of the what, what are they arguing about, the why, and then the work. That I'm all I'm down with that. Here's the, and it clearly clicked for you and made you a very successful student and and of a fair, very successful legal thinker, um, and I think that's fabulous. I have found that the students who are the most insecure about their grasp of this whole thing are the ones who, given the map of Iraq, follow it like it's holy scripture. And as you said yourself, that's a deadly error. Um, I've seen the other things in action, you know, like this year's trendy, you know, just the acronym changes a letter. It's great. I, I, my critique applies to all of them for the reason you say is that there's no one size fits all uh, solution to, uh, to legal problems, letting the legal problem and the fights that will emerge from it organize your answer is a better way but I I get why for the beginner that's not a help that's not a, a a helpful answer so the here's the problem in my hands or yours Iraq can you know like get us to the moon but in the hands of the people who are struggling the most it's a really bad idea mm. yeah I like that you propose an alternative for people who might find you know, because uh, I am a—I think most lawyers are to some extent like a rule follower. <laughs> so the when you have something like Iraq, it it does tend to be that you you're like, okay, well they give me this thing to do called Iraq, and I'm gonna follow it. And if I do it right, then the outcome will be what it should be, right? And that's the whole sort of hope. But for people, and I actually did an interview recently with. Katie Rose Gaspryle, who is one of our authors, she does the complete writing series with uh, Professor Alexa Chu, and she's neurodivergent. And she talks about a lot how presenting things in different ways and different ways to reach success can be particularly helpful for neurodivergent folks, but just in the name of accessibility. And so I think giving an alternative to Iraq, if it's not something that, if it, if something just doesn't feel right to you or it's not clicking for you or it's you want to follow it to a T and we now know based on what you said that that's not a good option that maybe this alternative option will give you the success that you're looking for because ultimately that's what all students want right is success on their exams especially after that first semester if they don't <laughs> go the way that they hoped this provides them a means to do that so i, I would describe your version of how you used Iraq, very much sort of the way that Atul Gawande um, talks about checklists. So if, if, if the question is, are there 
um, ways you can go back over either a memo that you've written uh, or an exam answer in particular uh, to make sure you're not missing anything. IRAC sounds great to me for that because you can miss things. Uh, but as you could imagine from the fact that I wrote this article, the bedtime story we've been talking about, one of my main lessons to my students is you're not here uh, to impose a straitjacket upon yourself in which you used to be a person and now you're a lawyer, right? It's being a lawyer is a component of being a person. It's a certain expansion uh, of your skills and capabilities, but it's not a radical departure uh, from where you were before. And from my point of view, all of these methods transform the writer uh, from, I really want to listen to what I'm being asked about and provide a coherent answer to, oh my God, right? The world is so complicated uh, that I, the only thing I can do to save myself from drowning uh, is to put my answer into a structure. That, that to me is the, um, uh, the problem with all of these methods. And in particular on exams, they're also very slow, right? So, I mean, imagine, this is a, a story I tell all the time with my students, uh, that you know, you walk into a gas station uh, and say to the get to the to the um, uh, to the proprietor pre GPS. But now we all have all different. Men. But I, I want to get to Fenway Park. How do I get there? And the person looks at you and says, "Oh, I see. Your issue is that you want to get to Fenway Park, and probably the rule is you want a quick and easy way to get there. And if that's the case, I would suggest." Uh, that you uh, go down the road, take your third right, right, and then take the second left, uh, and then you'll be there. Whereas in the real world, right, you would say, how do I get to Fenway Park? And the person would immediately say, go to the third light, take a right, or, or, and, and, if, and if they did it the other way, you know, you'd have grandchildren before the, the, you, you actually ever got to, to and from, from, from my point of view, all of these structures are, um, interposed between you and what it is you're being asked to resolve. I, I like Michael's approach much better in which if, you're, if, if you want a, a structure, it, it starts with the same thing that we started the case brief with. Okay, so this is a story. Who's going to sue who, right? What are they going to want in the suit? And what's their argument for why they should get it? And that will immediately alert you to, oh yeah, well if they're going to if they want to get there, right, they're going to have to prove this, prove this, prove this, win this interpretive battle, win that, and it's much more directly uh, responsive uh, to what it is that um, the law school exams uh, are seeking. Uh, so I also actually view the almost. Um, slavish devotion uh, to Iraq methods uh, among legal writing instructors as a product of a what I would describe as a catastrophic capitulation uh, on the part of law schools uh, to um, large corporate law firms that decided that they wanted 
people to have summer jobs uh, in their first year uh, to do the kind of things that you do at large corporate law firms. So people start law school and unsurprisingly, they're learning a new language. Uh, and instead of waiting and giving people a chance to like learn a little bit before we start people writing memos and doing all the things that you do in legal writing, uh, in you know, early September, rather than having them brief cases, which is, what, which is what I started teaching legal writing, that's what people did in the beginning, they're off writing memos right away. And the first round of memos come in, and you know, I hear this from so many people, oh my God, the students today, they don't know how to write, the blah, blah, blah. Right? None of which is true, the students today are great. Right? But you're just asking them to do things too soon. And now you ask them to do things too soon, and the memos come back and they're a mess. And you go, well, what am I going to do? I'm, I, I got to teach all these students and all their memos are a mess. Of course they're a mess. They, it, 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 you know, it, it's like the third week of uh, French class. You want to ha have a discussion with them in French on you know, the red and the black and Perigorio, and, and they can't do it, right? So, so now you give them a structure, right? And you say, oh, this, this is going to help them. And all the students inhale this structure. Oh, this is going to save me. They don't need to be saved. They just need to spend a little more time in law school, right? And the, the structure then gets embraced as the, the, this is the formula. And, you know, I, I think the same way that what Michael said is only one kind of question, uh, it's only one kind of legal challenge or legal problem that they're going to face uh, when they're in practice. It may be the kind of problem that they most often face uh, in corporate law firms. I don't know. I never worked in a corporate law other than summers. I never worked in a corporate, corporate law firm. Uh, but the um, you know we we at Northeastern we were really big believers in sending people out to practice at an early stage, and I think that that's a great thing. But mm -hmm. um, uh, but there's a whole variety of things that they can do uh, in early stages, and they don't have to have this very one narrow type of uh, of experience uh, in these big firms. Uh, and the um, the whole system would be better if we slowed things down a little bit. And it used to be, you know, when I was a student, nobody got a law job after their first year. The, the, uh, um, the assumption was uh, that after one year, you don't know that much yet. So you should mm -hmm. uh, you know, do something else. The story that our faculty told us uh, was, uh, this is your very last chance to do something that's not law. Go be a lifeguard. Uh, you know, wait tables, um, but do something different. Now we think of that as unheard of, uh, and we expect everyone to start. And, you know, I think from the point of view of getting students ready, uh, you know, although it's stressful to go for three straight years uh, in class working, in class working, uh, I think that that's a good thing. But I think trying to get them ready on September 15th, uh, as opposed to March 1st uh, is too fast. And I think that's one of the sources of the love for IRAC. Interesting. Interesting. You know, I was a law clerk. So after I graduated law school, I clerked in an immigration court. And so I read lots and lots of briefs. And, you know, I think, I don't know, I, I I think that experience gave me a certain perspective or 
a certain appreciation for Ira. Uh, and, I, you know, I'll play a little bit of the part of the legal writing professor, but one of the things that was nice about Iraq is one, it does operate like a checklist. So I think putting it in that way, Jeremy, was a really good way to put it. It makes sure that you address all the things you need to address. But also number two was that <laughs> some of the briefs I read were just all over the place. And even if they had all of the parts, they were so misplaced that it rendered a lot of what they had to say incoherent. And the reality is a judge, a law clerk, whomever you're writing for only has so much time. And if it's your incoherent with all the pieces brief versus a brief that follows Iraq or something similar that I can easily follow because I'm familiar with Iraq, the brief that is easier to follow is going to be better for me every time. And so one of the things that I at least appreciate about Iraq is it kind of makes it so that a lot of people people speak the same language so that your whole audience is able to digest what you're saying. People know what to expect. They know where to look if they're looking for something in particular and so on. And like, as so for example, as a law clerk, if I wanted to look for the rule, it was very easy for me to find the rule for someone who used something like Iraq or a similar structure versus something I wasn't as familiar with. And I had to like dig pages in and try to find it. And so just that sort of cohesion, I do think adds value in some ways. It doesn't add value or has its own cons in the ways that you address. But I do see sort of the method to the madness in that sense for whatever it's worth. <laughs> So just to be clear, coherence, clarity, structure, nothing that I want to suggest is to oppose to those things. It's crucial that your exams be structured, coherent, and clear. Uh, in fact, if they're not, it almost doesn't matter how much good substantive exactly. material you put into your exam. Uh, my, exam my, my exams... Um, uh, I have the same instructions I've used now for over 30 years. Uh, answers will be judged on um, organization coverage, clarity, and insight. So I'm totally in, fa in favor of, uh, of structure. It, it, it's, it's much more um, that I want the substance to create the structure rather than the structure uh, forcing you to try to squeeze substance into a structure. Uh, that doesn't fit. If you have a judge who has a particular structure that they want, if it's Iraq or any structure, please praise the Lord, <laughs> follow what the judge wants. Same thing is true. Uh, you know, we, we, we have not stressed this perhaps uh, as much as we should, uh, but if anything that we say in our book or anything we said in the podcast uh, is contrary to what your professor says, throw out what we said, and do what your professor says, because they are going to grade your exam, and we're not. You know, if we're lucky enough to have you in our classes, well, then you can follow what we say. But, but, but the um, uh, the idea that everyone is going to speak the same language, that I'm not sure that given the multiplicity of versions of Iraq, pre-act, 
that were that were there anymore. Uh, and if it's if it's a, if it turns out to be a language that doesn't allow us to express what we want to express, well, then it's not a good language. So I, every, I agree with everything you said. I think that that uh, if the alternative to Iraq is mush, go for Iraq every time, right? I mean, that's just not a hard uh, challenge. But what I'm suggesting is that the, the who sued whom for what and on what theory and the focusing on um, who, who are the parties, what will they be arguing about, just for exactly what Michael said, and what arguments will they make is a better checklist and a better way of um, cluing you in uh, to where you want to go. Because at the end of the day, there's a question there and you want to answer the question. And the question will give you guidance that will allow you to be structured so you don't have to force yourself to fit into a template. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let's end on this question. If there's one thing law students can remember from everything we talked about today, what should it be? The one thing that, that, that I would say is sort of the theme of all three of the episodes that we have recorded uh, is that law school educational culture is different from the cultures that you have encountered in previous sessions of you know high school, college, master's degrees, whatever other places that you have studied. And so uh, rather than taking the many admirable skills that all students have already developed uh, as um, successful students who have been admitted to law school, you embrace the idea that this is really something new uh, and that you are going to have to bring new skills um, and embrace it and have fun with it. Uh, I think, you know, maybe even more simply, uh, one of the reasons that uh, we wrote the book is that we love law school. Uh, I myself loved law school so much that I basically never left. Uh, <laughs> I, gradu I graduated law school in 1981 uh, in May, and I started teaching in September. Uh, and although I have occasionally wandered out for some interesting experiences, I've come running right back uh, because uh, law school is a great place to be. And the reason it's a great place to be is because uh, you get to think about uh, one of the most interesting questions, uh, which is how can we all live together uh, peacefully, uh, cooperatively, uh, in ways that give everyone a chance uh, to um, maximize their uh, talents and um, fulfill their dreams. And a lot of people choose law school because of that. But then when they arrive, the foreignness of the culture and the, um, the pressure of the work just knocks the stuffings out of them. And they forget why they came to begin with uh, and how much fun uh, law school can be. And you know, one of the reasons we wrote the book uh, was to help people get more quickly acclimated uh, so they could restore the sense that, hey, look at me. I get to put justice uh, and um, law at the center of my career. Uh, and isn't that a great, isn't that a great thing? So that would be the one thing I would say. I love that. 
I love that. And Michael, no pressure, but what's the one thing that you would want everyone to take away? Well, my first instinct was the the the, the shift in educational um, styles that Jeremy so eloquently captured. My second is to go back to something we said earlier, which is answer the question asked. Um, there is a tendency in undergraduate and other settings to think of exams as an occasion to show the professor how much you know and how much you learned and to feed it back. And accordingly, it can frequently be an effective exam strategy for an undergraduate to figure out what the question is about and then to write about what the question is about and do uh, what might be described as an information dump or an outline dump or just blah, everything you everything you know about World War II or what have you. Um, that is so not what law exams ask for. We say in the new edition, we have never seen an exam question that says, tell us everything you know about the rule against perpetuities. You know, students wish that we would ask that because by the time they come, you know, they'll probably have four pages of outline that they can just dump. But uh, once again, law exam questions typically put you in a real world setting where you have to lawyer a problem. And in the same way that the senior partner who's asked you to write the memo or the judge who is conducting an inquisition during the argument in court expects you to answer the question they've just asked and not just talk about the thing, that's what the exam is doing. Uh, the law exam is doing as well, asking not for generalized knowledge, but actually for, for doing what a lawyer would do with a problem, which means, as we've been talking about, identifying the issues, explaining why they're issues, and beginning to formulate the arguments that the parties are likely to make to push the court one way or the other. And, and then if the question wants you to draw a conclusion, you would go beyond just, you'd go beyond maybe, much as I hate to say it, and, and you know, reach some sort of resolution. But a resolution born of ignoring the other side is like the strategy small children have as they come down the stairs after bedtime in the middle of their parents' party, figuring if they put their hands over their eyes so they can't see their parents, their parents can't see them. And it's like the professor is actually going to know that you haven't canvassed the other side, um, <laughs> no matter how emphatic and eloquent your uh, your your conclusion is. So, answer the question. Great, I think that's solid advice. As is everything that y'all have shared. We've tackled quite a lot in our discussions here. <laughs> Congratulations on the second edition. Y'all should be so proud of everything that you've accomplished with this book. And I think it's such an incredible resource for all law students. So thank you for bringing it out into the world 
we appreciate you and all of the wisdom that you've shared with us. But other than that, I can't wait to have you back next time. And thank you for being here with me. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you for your engaging questions and responses. This has been been great my fun. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, I will catch you all next time. <laughs> On another edition of To Deal. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And that wraps up another great conversation here at the Law School Lounge. Thank you so much for joining us. Please don't forget to check out the newest edition of Getting to Maybe How to Excel on Law School Exams. You can find that on Amazon or the Carolina Academic Press website at www.cap-press.com. Also, like I said at the beginning of this episode, we talked a lot about a bedtime story, Professor Jeremy Paul's article. You can find that in the show notes or just through a quick Google search. Please go ahead and take a look at that as it really does put a lot of things into perspective. If you're not doing so already, please give us a follow on Twitter, now X, at Law School Lounge Pod and Instagram to stay up to date on our newest episodes, any bonuses we're able to put out. We really appreciate all of you listeners. If you have any recommendations for the podcast, you can reach me at lawschoolloungepod at caplaw.com. I'd love to hear from you and thank you so much for listening. <music>